Chapter 3, Part 2 of The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War Eve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Yallily. The Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve, by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 3, Part 2. Harry left Madame Delaunay's house immediately after breakfast, still firm in his purpose to avoid Shepherd, and went to the bank, on which he held drafts properly attested. Not knowing what the future held, and inspired perhaps by some counsel of caution, he drew half of it in gold, intending to keep it about his person, risking the chance of robbery. Then he went toward the bay, anxious to see the sea, and those famous forts, Sumter, Moultrie, and the others, of which he had heard so much. It was a fine, crisp morning, one to make the heart of youth leap, and he soon noticed that nearly the whole population of the city was going with him toward the harbor. St. Clair, who had departed for his bank, overtook him, and it was evident to Harry that his friend was not thinking much now of banks. "'What is it, Arthur?' asked Harry. "'They stole a march on us yesterday,' replied St. Clair. See that dark and grim mass rising up sixty feet or more near the center of the harbor? The one with the stars and stripes flying so defiantly over it? That's Fort Sumter. Yesterday, while we were enjoying our Christmas dinner and talking of the things that we would do, Major Anderson, who commanded the United States garrison in Fort Moultrie, quietly moved it over to Sumter, which is far stronger. The wives and children of the soldiers and officers have been landed in the city, with the request that we send them to their homes in the States, which, of course, we will do. But Major Anderson, who holds the fort in the name of the United States, refuses to give it up to South Carolina, which claims it. Harry felt an extraordinary thrill, a thrill that was in many ways most painful. Talk was one thing, action was another. Here stood South Carolina and the Union face to face, looking at each other through the muzzles of cannon, Sumter had one hundred and forty guns, most of which commanded the city, and the people of Charleston had thrown up great earthworks, mounting many cannon. Boy as he was, Harry was old enough to see that here were all the elements of a great conflagration. It merely remained for somebody to touch fire to the toe. He was not one to sentimentalize, but the sight of the defiant flag, the most beautiful in all the world, stirred him in every fiber. It was the flag under which both his father and Colonel Talbot had fought. "'It has to be, Harry,' said St. Clair, who was watching him closely. "'If it comes to a crisis, we must fire upon it. If we don't, the South will be enslaved, and black ignorance and savagery will be enthroned upon our necks.' "'I suppose so,' said Harry. "'But look how the people gather.' The battery and all the harbor were now lined with the men, women, and children of Charleston, Harry saw soldiers moving about Sumter, but no demonstration of any kind occurred there. He had not thought hereto about the garrison of the forts in the Charleston Harbor. He recognized for the first time that they might not share the opinions of Charleston, and this name of Anderson was full of significance for him. Major Anderson was a Kentuckian. He had heard his father speak of him. They had served together, but it was now evident to Harry that Anderson would not go with South Carolina. "'You'll see a small boat coming soon from Sumter,' said St. Clair. 
Some of our people have gone over there to confer with Major Anderson and demand that he give up the fort. I don't believe he'll do it, said Harry impulsively. Someone touched him upon the shoulder, and turning quickly, he saw Colonel Leonidas Talbot. He shook the colonel's hand with vigor and introduced him to young St. Clair. I have just come into the city, said the colonel, and I heard only a few minutes ago that Major Anderson had removed his garrison from Moultrie to Sumter. It is true, said St. Clair. He is defiant. He says that he will hold the fort for the Union. I had hoped that he would give up, said Colonel Talbot. It might help the way to a composition. He pulled his long mustache and looked somberly at the flag. The wind had risen a little, and it whipped about the staff. Its fluttering motions seemed to Harry more significant than ever of defiance. He understood the melancholy ring in Colonel Talbot's voice. He, too, like the boy's father, had fought under that flag, the same flag that had led him up the flame-swept slopes of Cerro Gordo and Chapultepec. "'Here they come,' exclaimed St. Clair, "'and I know already the answer that they bring.' The small boat that he had predicted put out from Sumter and quickly landed at the battery. It contained three commissioners, prominent men of Charleston, who had been sent to treat with Major Anderson, and his answer was quickly known to all the crowd. Sumter was the property of the United States, not of South Carolina, and he would hold it for the Union. At that moment the wind strengthened, and the flag stood straight out over the lofty walls of Sumter. "'I knew it would be so,' said Colonel Talbot with a sigh. "'Anderson is that kind of man. "'Come, boys, we will go back into the city. "'I am to help in building the fortifications, "'and as I am about to make a tour of inspection, "'I will take you with me.' "'Harry found that, although secession was only a few days old, "'the work of offense and defense was already far advanced. "'The planters were pouring into Charleston, "'bringing their slaves with them, "'and white and black labored together at the earthworks.' Rich men, who had never soiled their hands with toil before now, wielded pick and spade by the side of their black slaves. It was rumored that Teutot Beauregard, a great engineer officer, now commander at the West Point Military Academy, would speedily resign and come south to take command of the forces in Charleston. Strong works were going up along the mainland. The South Carolina forces had also seized Sullivan's Island, Morris Island, and James Island, and were mounting guns upon them all. Circling batteries would soon threaten Sumter, and, however defiantly the flag there might snap in the breeze, it must come down. As they were leaving the last of the batteries, Harry noticed the broad, strong back and erect figure of a young man who stood with his hands in his pockets. He knew by his rigid attitude that he was looking intently at the battery, and he knew, moreover, that it was Shepard. He wished to avoid him, and he wished also that his companion would not see him. He started to draw Colonel Talbot away, but it was too late. Shepard turned at that moment, and the colonel caught sight of his face. "'That man here among our batteries!' he exclaimed in a menacing tone. "'Come away, Colonel,' said Harry hastily. "'We don't know anything against him.' But Shepard himself acted first. He came forward quickly, his hand extended and his eyes expressing pleasure. "'I missed you this morning, Mr. Canton,' he said. "'You were too early for me, but we meet, nevertheless, in a place of the greatest interest. And here is Colonel Talbot, too.' Harry took the outstretched hand. He could not keep from liking Shepard, but Colonel Talbot, by turning slightly, avoided it without giving the appearance of brusqueness. His courtesy, concerning which the South Carolinians of his type were so particular, would not fail him, 
and while he avoided the hand, he promptly introduced Shepard and St. Clair. "'I did not expect to find events so far advanced in Charleston,' said Shepard. "'With the Federal garrison concentrated in Sumter, and the batteries going up everywhere, matters begin to look dangerous.' "'I suppose that you have made a careful examination of all the batteries,' said Colonel Talbot dryly. "'Casual, not careful,' returned Shepard in his usual cheerful tones. "'It is impossible at such a time to keep from looking at Sumter, the batteries, and all the other preparations.' We would not be human if we didn't do it, and I've seen enough to know that the Yankees will have a hot welcome if they undertake to interfere with Charleston. You see truly, said Colonel Talbot, with some emphasis. A happy chance has put me at the same place as Mr. Kenton, continued Shepard easily. I have letters which admitted me to the inn of Madame Delaunay, and I met him there last night. We are likely to see much of each other. Colonel Leonidas Talbot raised his eyebrows. When they walked a little further, he excused himself, saying that he was going out to meet a committee of defense at St. Andrew's Hall, and Harry and Arthur, after talking a little longer with Shepard, left him near one of the batteries. "'I'm going to my bank,' said St. Clair. "'I'm already long overdue, but it will be forgiven at such a time as this. And I must say, Harry, that Colonel Talbot does not seem to like your acquaintance, Mr. Shepard.' "'It is true. He doesn't, although I don't know just why.' said Harry. He saw Shepard at a distance three more times in the course of the day, but he sedulously avoided a meeting. He noticed that Shepard was always near the batteries and earthworks, but hundreds of others were near them, too. He did not return to Madame Delaunay's until evening, when it was time for dinner, where he found all the guests gathered with the addition of Shepard. Madame Delaunay assigned the new man to a seat near the foot of the table, and the talk ran on much as it had done at the Christmas dinner. Major St. Hilaire leading, which Harry surmised was his custom. Shepard, who had been introduced to the others by Madame Delaunay, did not have much to say, nor did the South Carolinians warm to him as they had to Harry. A slight air of constraint appeared, and Harry was glad when the dinner was over. Then he and St. Clair slipped away, and spent the evening roaming about the city, looking at the old historic places, the fine churches, the homes of the wealthy, and again at the earthworks and the harbor forts. The last thing Harry saw as he turned back towards Madame Delaunay's was that defiant flag of the Union, still waving above the dark and looming mass of old Sumter. He was unlocking the door to his room when Shepard came briskly down the hall, carrying his candle in his hand. "'I want to tell you good-bye, Mr. Kenton,' he said. "'I thought we were to be together here at the end for some time, but it is not to be so. "'What has happened?' It appears that my room had been engaged already by another man, beginning tomorrow morning. I was not informed of it when I came here, but Madame Delaunay has recalled the fact, and I cannot doubt the word of a Charleston lady. It appears also that no other room is vacant, owing to the great number of people who have come into the city the last week or two. So, I go. He did not seem at all discouraged, his tone being as cheerful as ever, and he held out his hand. Harry liked this man, although it seemed that others did not, and when he released the hand, he said, "'Take good care of yourself, Mr. Shepard. As I see it, the people of Charleston are not taking to you, and we do not know what is going to happen.' "'Both statements are true,' said Shepard, with a laugh, as he vanished down the hall. Nothing yet had been able to disturb his poise. Harry went into his own room, and, throwing open his front window to let in fresh air, he heard the hum of voices. He looked down into a piazza, 
and he saw two figures there, a man and a woman. They were Colonel Talbot and Madame Delaunay. He closed the blind promptly, feeling that unconsciously he had touched upon something hallowed, the thread of an old romance, a thread which, though slender, was nevertheless yet strong. Nor did he doubt that the suggestion of Colonel Leonidas Talbot had caused the speedy withdrawal of Shepard. Several more days passed. Harry found that he was taken into the city's heart, and a spell was very strong upon him. He knew that much of his welcome was due to the powerful influence of Colonel Leonidas Talbot, and to the warm friendship of Arthur St. Clair, who apparently was related to everybody. A letter came from his father, to whom he had written at once of his purpose, giving his approval and sending him more money. Colonel Kenton wrote that he would come south himself, but he was needed in Kentucky, where a powerful faction was opposing their plans. He said that Harry's cousin, Dick Mason, had joined the Home Guards, raised in the interests of the old Union, and was drilling zealously. The letter made the boy very thoughtful. The news about his cousin opened his eyes. The line of cleavage between North and South was widening into a gulf. But his spirits rose when he enlisted in the Palmetto Guards and began to see active service. His quickness and zeal caused him to be used as a messenger, and he was continually passing back and forth among the Confederate leaders in Charleston. He also came into contact with the Union officers in Fort Sumter. The relations of the town and the garrison were yet on a friendly basis. Men were allowed to come ashore and to buy fresh meat, vegetables, and other provisions. Strict orders kept anyone from offering violence or insult to them. Harry saw Anderson once, but he did not give him his name, deeming it best, because of the stand he had taken, that no talk should pass between them. He picked up a copy of the Mercury one morning and saw that a steamer, the Star of the West, was on its way to Charleston from a northern port, with supplies for the garrison in Fort Sumter. He read the brief account, threw down the paper, and rushed out for his friend St. Clair. He knew that the coming of this vessel would fire the Charleston heart, and he was eager to be upon the scene. End of chapter 3, part 2. Recording by Bill Yallily.